Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. This is Pod Save the World uh, Insomnia Edition. Yeah. We're both feeling our (laughs) best today. Yep, yep. I've had a day, man. Some some early wake-ups. Quite a day. It's also weird to talk to you about foreign policy um, when there's so much dysfunction happening in Washington. I'm really yeah. upset with both sides. I'm just kidding. About well, I mean, part. you know, the intangible point is when the United States is a complete train wreck at home, like our yeah. capacity to conduct a competent foreign policy, which is already difficult, is like when you can't raise the debt ceiling, how are you going to navigate a multilateral China yeah. strategy? You can't pay your bills. Yeah, it would be nice if we could go to India and China and say, hey, look at this giant investment we just made in renewable energy. Yes. That, that would be Manchin. useful before the Glasgow conference that's intended to save the world from impending climate disaster. <sighs> but but w- lots of big news in the world, Ben. Digress, yeah. uh, we're going to talk about the German election results. Uh, big hearings today in the Senate on Afghanistan. There was a wild report over the weekend about the Trump administration's plans to arrest, maybe kill uh, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Super fucked up. Big foreign policy votes on the Hill last week. Uh, update on Burma. Hacking for hire, and then some fun-ish, I guess, anecdotes about Trump and foreign policy uh, in a new book. Uh, our guest today is your friend, yeah. my friend, Jason Rezaian. Yes. Fantastic journalist. Great storyteller. Great storyteller. Yeah. Hilarious human being. New podcast is out on Spotify, 544 days. I will be binging uh, on my drive home. So I listened to earlier versions, and then we put... Um, Jason threw a second hell of making him retrack like 50 hours worth of stuff. That's awful. And it is so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like in the sound is amazing. Uh, one of the hosts of through line, through line podcast did the music. It's just like incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's such a good show. And you know, Jason, you know the story. We won't yeah. give anything away. Yeah. But no, and I'm a, I'm a repeat guest on that podcast. Yeah. Um, and also, Ben, did you know that September is National Voter Registration Month? Uh, I, As an avid PSA listener, I'm aware of that. <laughs> Vote Save America is trying to raise $1.5 million to our no-off-years fund. That money goes to help uh, organizations register voters in places that will make the difference in the next elections. Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, more, Pennsylvania, Texas, Wisconsin. Go to votesaveamerica.com slash donate to learn more. Ben, you're hitting the road soon, too. You're doing a bunch of events. Uh, yeah, I have been. And uh, let's see, uh, Wednesday, uh, so today, the day the pod drops, at least, uh, I will be at the Village Well Bookstore in Culver City. Ooh. Then on Thursday, I will be at Stanford, um, hosted by our Mike friend McFall. Mike McFall. Yep. And then Monday, uh, I will be with, uh, hosted by our former guru, David Axrod at the University of Chicago. Oh, man, you're yeah. everywhere. Yeah, so uh, will those, you know, World those unite here. This is a nice time to visit Chicago. I agreed to teach at the University of Chicago for a week in January. Yeah. And that was less of a... It's not the time, man. That's not the right time less to do it. less of yeah. a smart move. But yeah. those kids were so scary smart. They, they got mad at me when I wouldn't give them like homework. Yeah, Stanford and Chicago had some, some smart kids. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, 
So hopefully, you know, people buy some books uh, and have a conversation and buy the books. Subscribe to wear the your merch. Wear your merch. Uh, yeah. I, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll see you. Um, Shout something about soft power. Yes, I'll, I'll put faces to the the numbers of the world that's out there. So I great. love it. Yeah, I love it. Um, all right, so let's start with these German elections because it's a big deal. Yeah, uh, Germans went to the polls on Sunday. They're going to decide. A lot of them voted by mail, but they're going to decide their country's political future after 16 years with Angela Merkel as chancellor. Um, there's not a new chancellor yet for reasons we'll explain, but here's what we do know, Ben. The center-left Social Democratic Party got the most votes with 25.7%. Uh, Merkel's conservative Christian Democratic Union Party got about 24%. The Greens got 14.8%. A pro-business party called the Free Democrats got 11.5%. And the scary, shitty, right-wing AFD party got 10.3%. So what does that all mean? It means the Social Democrats, who are sort of center-left in the Green Party, did quite well, both gained between 5 and 6% from the last election. It means that Merkel's party and her successor, this guy Armin Laschet, got crushed. They lost nearly 9% since the last election. Uh, remember, that he was the guy who got caught laughing at a memorial service. Not not good. Yeah. yeah, you suggested at the time that that was not smart. I think that no, was... No, neither was, uh, you know, dealing with the floods uh, in catastrophic ways. Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. impressive <laughs> yeah, call. Yeah. Um, so, and also, well, like, well, it's not great that the AFD party, this right-wing party, got double-digit support. They did lose about 2% from the last election, so I guess we should all feel better about that. And it kind of tracks with Marine Le Pen's election dip in France. Yeah, and what we should feel good about, too, is when Merkel, in the boldest move of her tenure, took in a million refugees, largely Syrian in 2015. Everybody said, oh, this is going to drive them to the far right. And that just hasn't really happened. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, uh, if anything, we can talk about it, but this election seems to indicate a move to the left. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, before we get to this next chancellor question, I'm going to try to quickly explain how German elections work. Um, so every four years, Germans over 18, you cast two votes. The first is for your local representative. The second is for a party. And you can split those votes if you want, which in, in America would seem weird, but in you know a, a system with like five different parties is not as strange as it might sound. Um, the top vote getter in each district for that first vote gets a seat in parliament. But here's where it gets confusing. The overall makeup of parliament has to be proportional to that second vote's result. So if the Greens got 50%, of the second vote, they would need to have 50% of the seats in the Bundestag, which is very fun to say. The way you make that math work out is by granting parties more seats into the proportions work out. So the size of the Bundestag itself, the number of seats fluctuates, which just blows my mind. Mm. In 2017, there were 709 mm -hmm. members. Imagine being Pelosi trying to whip yeah. an ever-changing yeah. 709 member well, if they're very Parliament. reasonable Germans, so I mean, it's yeah, it's probably not a lot of yeah. mansion cinemas. Not a lot of tea parties. Yeah. So I'll spare you the additional details. Crazy system. What happens now is all the parties get together, they negotiate to see you can build a coalition that represents uh, a majority in the Bundestag and decide who is chancellor. This is going to take a bit. In 2017, it took five and a half months. So, Ben, with those confusing basics completed, any big takeaways from you about what this election result means for Germany and you know their leadership role in Europe? I, I think that, you know, my main takeaways are that, number one, like Germany's had a very dominant figure in its politics for 16 years. And it's going to take this election is not resolving kind of, you know, someone ascending to the position of chancellor who's going to have the same clout within German politics or even within Europe itself. And so 
you know, when I was there for eight years, you know, Angela Merkel was the kind of first port of call in Europe, you know, on everything. Mm -hmm. She was the person who could kind of marshal collective action in Europe on the financial crisis, on the refugee crisis, on any number of issues. Um, the second point is that it, uh, th this is a, a noticeable shift or tack somewhat left. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not an overwhelming result, and and it's still clearly a, a fairly centrist kind of country. But you yeah, know, it's like forty percent. Like yeah, Greens the, and SPD, social Democrats, the Social yeah. Democrats and the Greens clearly are the ones that that picked up and that improved their standing, and and I think that that's representative of you know a, a natural correction from. 16 years of kind of center right, all the very centrist kind of governance. And also in the green movement, this kind of increasing focus on climate change. And, and so then the most likely coalition, you know, it will probably be one that has the Social Democrats and the Greens together with the FDP, which is this kind of libertarian party um, that has always kind of been around German politics. Um, actually sponsored a trip that Josh Ernest and I took what? in 2005. How was that? Uh, across Germany. It was great. We got to drink a lot of beer and you know meet a lot of Germans. Uh, but I digress. Uh, the FDP ha has a history of being a coalition partner. You right. Know? Um, have you seen these sketches where like they have names for these potential coalitions? They yeah. call it like the, the traffic light because it'd be like red, yellow, green, like the SPD, the FPD, the Green Party. Like, it's yeah. very funny. The Jamaica coalition. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's very funny. Yeah, yeah no, the, the colors, it's like a soccer team or something. Yeah. But, uh, I, I mean, it seems like that would be the most likely result with... But, but yeah, I think within Germany, that means, you know, probably um, like more consensus-based, you know, governance, although Merkel is definitely consensus-based, but, but with the needle pointed a little bit more to the left... Um, and in Europe, uh, I think that means, you know, less of a German-centered EU set of policies than, than has been the case under Merkel. And the, Macron, particularly if he's reelected, will probably be trying to kind of throw his weight around in Europe. But inevitably, that all kind of sorts itself out as kind of a, the big, big European powers, you know, in some fashion kind of setting the pace. Yeah. So I know you're a Merkel fan. I think we've sung her praises on this show before. Obama was a huge fan, too. Uh, but I did want to get your reaction to some criticism of her from this recent Atlantic piece I read. Uh, the title was The World Won't Miss Angela Merkel is by Yasha Monk. The gist of the argument is, look, Merkel is going to be replaced by a moderate. We might get a slightly more progressive sort of status quo or coalition. So like, you know, there probably won't be major changes, even though she's gone now. And then the piece specifically criticizes Merkel for two things. The first is basically fighting for austerity yeah. and cuts after the financial crisis instead of like what, bailing out the countries that needed bailouts or kicking them out of the EU, just sort of like bumping along for a decade. And the the second and third order effects that arose from that. The second argument was when Viktor Orban was first yes. elected, the EU could have imposed sanctions on Hungary, checked him early, but Merkel opposed taking meaningful steps to hold Orban accountable and allowed his party to remain a member of the Christian Democratic faction in the European Parliament. Um, the piece also criticizes her record on accepting Syrian refugees and sort of suggests that it wasn't all she said it was, but I found that hard to yeah. stomach or believe, to be honest. Um, what do you make of those criticisms, sir? I, I entirely share uh, parts of them. You know, the, the, the fact that Germany has been a restraining force from kind of utilizing the EU's power to to sanction or curb the excesses of Viktor Orban in Hungary or the Law and Justice Party in, in Poland mm -hmm. is certainly the case. Um, you know, Orban 
his corruption benefits enormously from EU funds. So they get right. like billions of dollars to build roads and stuff. And he notoriously kind of skims off the top and enriches a bunch of cronies with that money. And the EU just keeps keeps the spigot on. And, you know, with Merkel, I think it's number one, she was so focused on holding the EU together that she didn't want to do something that could push somebody out. Um, but also like her Christian Democratic Union shares some overlap with Orban's kind of right-wing Christian party, uh, Fidesz. So I think that's that's an entirely appropriate criticism. I think austerity, look, Obama had this argument with her you know, from the first G20, I don't know if you remember, where oh, we, yeah, we, we, were, we were going saying, now is not the time for austerity, now is the time to spend some money and yep. stimulate the economy and, and strengthen safety nets. And But I think- on God, that, that was annoying. It was the whole anno- trip was annoying. It was annoying. And, and so, yeah, we had a philosophical difference with Merck on that. I do think on that front- She's pretty reflective of Germans. You know, like they're pretty prudent. Uh, they're pretty fiscally responsible. Um, and and where I'd push back and defend her is, look, she's a small C conservative, right? So I don't share all of her politics. Um, but she was willing, um, unlike almost every other leader that I encountered, she was willing to do politically unpopular things that she thought were were right. So even on the austerity piece, Germany, we were constantly pressing them to do more to kind of help bail out Greece and Southern Europe. Um, and and she never went quite as far as we wanted, but she went farther than the German people wanted. Um, and that kind of held the Eurozone together. Again, most famously on the refugee thing that was not in her political interest. And no. there have been very few occasions in the last couple of decades where political leaders did things that were politically damaging because she she thought it was right. And they did take in a million refugees and they they have done a good job at absorbing that refugee population. Um, and, and so I do think that, that look, everybody should be criticized. Um, on balance, if you look at the totality of her, her tenure, she was the center that held in Europe and she was the center that held through the financial crisis and she was the center that kind of held through Trump. And, and yes, I don't always like that the center is further to the right than I'd like, but, mm-hmm. but man, um, wouldn't you like to have Angela Merkel as your, uh, right, right of center party in the United States, you know? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, uh, leaders getting a lot of criticism, there were some big hearings in the Senate on Tuesday, Ben, where Lloyd Austin, the secretary of defense, Mark Milley, the chairman of the joint chiefs and Frank McKenzie, who's the head of central command and sort of the de facto leader in Afghanistan for the U S military were oppressed a lot on Afghanistan. So, the biggest headline coming out of the day that I've seen so far is that uh, Chairman Milley and General McKenzie said it was their personal opinion that the U.S. should have kept 2,500 U.S. troops in Afghanistan. And you know, presumably they provided that advice to Biden in, in various uh, situations or meetings. That seemed to contradict what President Biden said in an ABC News interview last month. Let's listen to that. Top military advisors warned against withdrawing on this timeline. They wanted you to keep about 2,500 troops. No, they didn't. It was split. That, that wasn't true. That wasn't true. They didn't tell you that they wanted troops to stay? No, not at, not in terms of whether we were going to get out in a time frame, all troops. They didn't argue against that. So no one, no one told your military advisors did not tell you, no, we should just keep 2,500 troops. It's been a stable situation for the last several years. We can do that. We can continue to do that. No, no one said that to me that I can recall. So reporters are calling out what seems like an obvious... Yeah inconsistency there, which was these generals saying, we said, yeah, keep 2,500 troops. Uh, Biden saying, no, they didn't. What Biden's team is saying, Jensaki, Kate Bettingfield are saying that Biden's argument was, no, the advice was split. Different military leaders offered different advice. 
but also that none of his military leaders said you could maintain stability at the 2,500 troop level without a return to direct conflict. So the point being, yeah. there was this status quo and, and the ceasefire against US forces from the Taliban based on the deal Trump cut. If you left 2,500 troops in forever, the Taliban starts attacking us again. There's no status quo. I don't know. It's a rough soundbite for Biden. Look, I, I know what I, they're saying. It's a complicated issue. Yeah, but when I heard that at the time, I, I thought, me too. This is coming. I was like, you know, uh, all no those way. generals argued for more troops. Yeah, because I get, you know, eight years in the White House, there was never one occasion in which a general didn't argue <laughs> to keep troops in Afghanistan yes. or add more troops. Like Literally. The, so uh, when he said that, I, I thought at the time that what he meant is that there was no dissent on kind of like once he decided to withdraw, yeah. like the pace of it or something. I so, Something was just off in that exchange. And you can... Like, because it was reported at the time that he made the decision that he overruled right. Austin and Millie. And, and there was even some kind of backgrounding from the White House to that effect, it felt like. So uh, it just, it, it, you know, look, we've worked for a politician who every now and then they say something, you're like, what? that, you know, that's yeah, not. <laughs> like, sort of garbled. It, it's kind of garbled. And, um, but yeah, like, there's no surprise right. that, that he overruled the military in the withdrawal. Like, that. That, I think, has been kind of priced into my understanding of the situation from the very beginning. Me you know? too. I interestingly, Milley later seemed to concede that even keeping 2,500 troops wouldn't have created a durable Afghan army, a durable yeah. Afghan government, that the final outcome would have been basically the same. So, I mean, I think that is sort of the, the big picture point. Um, General McKenzie also said that Trump's peace deal with the Taliban was, quote, the primary accelerant to lowering morale and general efficiency of the Afghan military, something we've heard before. Uh, Secretary Austin pushed back on the idea that you heard in a lot of right-wing circles that it was a disaster to close Bagram Air Base. Yeah. We should have held on to it during the evacuation. Uh, Austin told senators it would have required sending an additional 5,000 troops to Afghanistan yes. to keep Bagram open and not help with the evacuation efforts. Um, there were a lot of important conversations about the withdrawal, the future of Afghanistan, the presence of ISIS, Al-Qaeda. But you know, it does seem like this will mostly just be used as fodder to you know, try to dry out inconsistencies. I know you watched some of these hearings. You were up early. Uh, any any big takeaways? Yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, Lloyd Austin um, at the beginning and, and at times throughout the hearing acknowledged, like, the failure of certain aspects of U.S. strategy in Afghanistan over the years in ways that I don't know if I've ever heard, like, a, a sitting uh, military leader do, you know, that that... The, the model for how we built the security forces was flawed, that we couldn't kind of forge a nation. Um, so I, I to me, that was an interesting you know moment in American kind of military history that like for my experience of the U.S. military, you know, and certainly when you and I were there, Tommy, was like a belief in, you know, the rightness, for instance, of counterinsurgency strategy mm -hmm. or the viability of building massive security forces like this. And it did feel to me like in a healthy way, there was some acceptance of uh, and some learning of lessons. I mean, yeah. uh, about that, maybe we shouldn't have tried to build an army kind of in the image of our own army. Maybe it needed to be something different in Afghanistan. And then Millie, I think on the kind of Woodward stuff was kind of interesting in defending um, what he did um, and, you know, kind of identifying, you know, um, what he believes the responsibilities of a military officer are, which are yes to the chain of command, but you know also there's kind of like a set of kind of values and um, you know you know kind of 
there's like a higher duty essentially to the constitution. You know? Yeah, Millie was sitting there thinking, uh, I should not have had the soup. This has created a yeah, lot of problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bob Woodward interview. You should listen to Dan, man. You yeah, listen, listen to, to Dan. Dan. Millie had a lot of soup. General Millie. Um, did you happen to listen to uh, the New York Times The Daily episode today? No, no. This is the, uh, they interviewed um, Sammy Sadat, who is like the special forces commander yes. general in Afghanistan. Yeah. It was a really interesting interview because Sadat actually said that he left Afghanistan in June. And he's someone who grew up in a, born in Afghanistan, the Taliban takeover, lived through that with like five sisters who were, you know, brutally repressed by the Taliban, could go to school, anything else. But then he also, he eventually said he couldn't support the Ghani government. So he left the country in June and then came away feeling like ultimately the Taliban taking over was better for the majority of people in Afghanistan because kind of like that New Yorker piece we talked about, like at least people in villages aren't getting killed by airstrikes right now, even if, you know, you can't listen to music, the yeah. Taliban's repressive, et cetera. It's just a very interesting perspective that you you don't hear very often. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that um, the the cost and consequence of the actual war, you know, is... Um, you know, often the Taliban rules is not measured against that. It's measured against what we were trying to achieve. Yes. There, you know, yes. Um, and again, that doesn't make it any easier for the Afghans who are under right, Taliban no. rule. But it does remind us that the the kind of state of war is not like, like in, in Washington used to bother me that like th there was some equation between uh, the presence of American forces and e even in, in a war as like a, that's a stabilizing thing for people. And I mean, if you look at the countries where we've been fighting these wars, like they, they are not stable places. Yeah, you know? no, that's right. And then of course, you know, the Taliban, you know, they've completely locked women out of the government. They are oppressing students. Yeah. There's also sorts of reports of atrocities, like the horrible things are happening, but it was just an interesting interview to hear on balance. Yeah. I think, I think what'll be interesting to watch is, is, is if things, you know, things are relatively calm in terms of there not being a war, like does there start to be internal pressures on the Taliban right. from a population that is more educated, that have a taste of democracy, uh, that had women who were able to go to school? That would be the hope, right? Yeah. Is that there's so, some internal pressure that builds up. And hopefully that some sort of diplomatic effort can help yeah. push that as well. Um, so, Ben, over the weekend, uh, Yahoo News published this wild story about the Trump administration and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Uh, here's some big takeaways. First, Mike Pompeo, yeah. failed Secretary of State. And failed CIA director. Which then is, failed yeah. CIA yeah, director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He apparently advocated for kidnapping Assange from the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he was living at the time, and then either rendering him to a third country to be interrogated. Yeah, that worked out well in the past. Uh, or turning him over to the British government. I think the Brits said, absolutely not. You are not doing this on our territory. Uh, the report also said that at one point, Trump's team got wind that the Russians were planning to get Assange and move him to Moscow, presumably. And the CIA started preparing all these options to prevent that from happening, including, quote, potential gun battles with Kremlin operatives on the streets of London and shooting out the tires of a Russian plane carrying Assange. Yeah. A few too many born uh, yeah, movies exactly, there. Yeah. Yahoo also reported that President Trump actually asked about whether the CIA could assassinate Assange uh, and wanted to see options for how it could happen. Lots of people in the story poo-pooing it, saying, oh, he wasn't serious. It was Trump being Trump, but it's kind of yeah. serious yeah. when the yeah. president says that. Um, it also details debates during the Obama and Trump administrations about how to classify WikiLeaks 
and even some of the journalists who worked with WikiLeaks, like Glenn Greenwald uh, and Laura Portress. Some intelligence officials wanted to call them information brokers rather than journalists so that they could more aggressively spy on them. The Obama administration rejected that idea. Uh, but spying on WikiLeaks got more and more aggressive over time, especially during the Trump administration. So it's a long story worth reading in full. Um, ben, you and I dealt with like the early days of WikiLeaks together, yeah. the first sort of tranche of cables and things. Uh, but I was long gone when Edward yeah. Snowden emerged and when these- Lucky you. Yeah, big time. More intense debates happened. Like, what did you make of this reporting? And like, I don't know, when does Congress haul Pompeo's ass up to the Hill to testify about this? Yeah, I mean, there are two pieces of this. Um, like, the reporting is is terrifying and it's awful and they should never have been considering doing these things. And And look, they did, I mean- they assassinated Qasem Soleimani, you know, like mm -hmm. and Pompeo loves to crow about that. I mean, the, again, not a good guy by any stretch of the imagination, but th their their willingness to kind of push extrajudicial kind of actions um, around individuals, you know, was not limited to this, you know. Um, I, by the way, best detail in the story was that there was like a period of time when everybody within like a a, a couple block radius of the Ecuadorian embassy where Assange was hiding out, they said every single person there was like either a Russian American or British intelligence <laughs> operative. <laughs> like even like the, the cleaning people, like the the woman pushing the baby in the yeah. carriage, you know, like a bunch of guys with yeah, Russian yeah, accents, yeah, like reading, uh, newspapers reading newspapers on the bench. Yeah. Yeah. So that was good. But, Very but, subtle. but to me, like like there was a it, it speaks to kind of like a you know, I said this to you, Tommy, you and I are going back and forth about this. Like that there were a series of leaks and stuff that it was always like the end of the world. This is like the worst leak in the history of leaks. That happened like a lot during the Obama years, oh, yeah. continued under the Trump years, apparently. And and this kind of desire for like vengeance um, is an unhealthy impulse for a security uh, service, an intelligence service. And I remember Pompeo at the time referring to them as like a foreign adversary yes. or something. And, and everybody knew then it was kind of weird. I will say on Assange, like I have no sympathy for this guy beyond obviously thinking that he, like any individual, should not be targeted in this fashion. So, but, but my... Look, my assessment of him and, and, you know, I'll get people adding me and, you know, uh, Glenn Greenwald, but like the Russia thing, the, 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 it, it, this is not a conspiracy theory. The, there is a report that we can all read, um, the conclusion of exhaustive investigation that like the Russian GRU, like directly provided WikiLeaks with the emails that they leaked. So... They were at least um, an unwitting vessel for Russian intelligence operations. Like, um, and that that's problematic. It's it's hard to 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 deal with that. I think people should recognize that journalists sometimes are unwitting too, like of where information you know might have come from that reaches them. So this is like a, a, an ethical uh, challenge when you have a group like WikiLeaks that kind of embraces the values of journalism but but clearly engages in you know kind of uh guerrilla you know uh leaking sometimes on behalf of quite bad actors right and so i don't find assange to be a particularly sympathetic character even uh, but i do some i i do on the sense that nobody should be subject to what the cia was apparently contemplating doing. yeah, yeah. I, I think this quote really like summed it up well for me 
For a former Trump national security official, the lessons of the CIA's campaign against WikiLeaks are clear. Quote, there was an inappropriate level of attention to Assange given the embarrassment, not the threat he posed yes. in context. And that should never happen. So this yeah. was after the so-called Volt 7 yeah. leaks, which are like super sophisticated cyber tools. Um, yeah, and it just seemed like they were pissed. They were freaked out. They wanted vengeance. My, my views on WikiLeaks, Manning, Chelsea Manning, Assange, are like complicated and incoherent and have evolved over time. Like the way Chelsea Manning was treated by the military while she was in detention is horrific. I, I it, it like bothers me. I've yeah. been reading the Spencer Ackerman book. It like upsets me oh, every time. Yeah, Obama commuted her sentence in part for that reason. I don't think it's okay. Like some of the disclosures she released about, you know, like the helicopter gunship video, like I do think that kind of information should be out. I don't think it's okay to dump 250,000 cables that you haven't read. I also don't think it was like a huge national security disaster. Like the government always acts it is. So again, like totally incoherent thoughts on this, but it's complicated. The coherence like that I might try to grope for here, acknowledging how complicated it is, is, is I did feel and see them kind of evolving, right? So our first interaction with them was their leaks were focused on Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's the stuff that Chelsea Manning provided, uh, some of it. And that did feel more whistleblower-ish. Yeah, you know, it was like, it did. we're revealing kind of abuse here. We're revealing the excesses of this military campaign. Um, I think military contractors too. Okay, so that's- And I think the Iraqi military and other, yeah. Yeah, so that's where we start with them. Then we get to the cables. And I remember when the, you know, chairing some meetings around that time, Tommy, where the scale of it is coming down on us. We're yeah, it's like, what the, fuck? what the fuck? And part of me was like, there's something kind of, there's like a twisted genius behind this kind of mass transparency. What I've said to you in the past too, though, the problem with not looking at those cables in the same way that the Times or the Guardian did, is it like, you know, the names of civil society people meeting totally. at there the embassy? Redactions. There weren't redactions. And like, that's shitty for those people. <laughs> Suddenly their name's out there meeting with the embassy. So then I start to be more concerned. Then by the end of the Obama years, they're releasing like John Podesta's emails, which is not providing any public service, you know, other than to the Trump campaign and the, you know, like, so I, I felt like they lost their credibility as like a truth to power transparency organization, there frankly wasn't much transparency objective served in dumping all the Clinton campaign emails out. That that was serving a very direct political interest in the United States. And, yeah. You know. I mean, right, like the DNC ones, you could argue, well, well, it showed that, you know, sort of the primary process seemed rigged to some people. I think that's a fair argument. But you know, back to the, the State Department cables. I mean, if the ambassador to France meets with someone, they have a conversation that's secret, they classify it, they send it back. If you release that, that's not whistleblowing. You, you can do yeah. it. You could say, like, there should be more transparency. We classify too many things. Happy to talk about that because I'm likely to agree with you. But it's not whistleblowing. Well, think about it this way. There's no like, there's there. a difference between what Chelsea Manning thought she was doing, you know, whether it was like legal or, you know, appropriate people can debate, but versus what the GRU was doing. Right. You know what I mean? Like, she, I think, believed that she was trying to bring some information to light. You know, um, the GRU wasn't trying to serve the interest of transparency by giving a bunch of emails to to, to WikiLeaks. Yeah. And Snowden was trying to talk about, you know, bulk surveillance. Yeah. And again, I think there's an important conversation yes. that was had at that. Yes. 
Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. So Ben, there were a bunch of interesting votes uh, on foreign policy last week on Capitol Hill that I think are worth mentioning. I think they're they're doing the NDAA, right? Like the big defense financing bill. So the first was a dust up over an amendment to provide another billion dollars in new funding to Israel to pay for interceptor missiles for their Iron Dome missile defense system. That's the system that very recently uh, knocked down thousands of rockets from Gaza, from Hamas. It's a very effective system. It's been funded by the U.S. That amendment ended up passing overwhelmingly. It was a margin of 420 to 9 opposed in the House. But it was only after progressives... um, uh, you know, expressed enormous frustration at the process the funding request went through or really the lack thereof. There yeah. wasn't really a t- traditional process. And generally speaking, the lack of willingness to talk about how U.S. assistance, military assistance to Israel can continue what AOC called, quote, persistent human rights abuses against the Palestinian people. That was uh, in her statement explaining her vote. Second, there was a bill from Congressman Rokana uh, to end logistical and intelligence support to Saudi Arabia 
in Yemen for the war in Yemen, and that passed by a vote of 219 to 207. If that language ends up in the final uh, National Defense Authorization Act or NDAA bill and Biden signs it, it will essentially end the U.S. involvement in the war in Yemen. So a lot of activists have been frustrated that President Biden announced that he would end supporting offensive military operations Mm -hmm. from Saudi in Yemen. But uh, he has not done more to end the Saudi blockade of Yemen. And some would argue that like the Saudi-led war in Yemen is essentially, it's entirely an offensive operation. So any support you provide them is is helping there. So Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor, is visiting Saudi Arabia and UAE this week. Uh, Hopefully he gets to to fondle that big orb that they rolled out for Trump. Uh, Let's pause there, Ben. So two interesting fights for progressives, this Iron Dome funding one and and the Yemen one. One, I feel like we made a lot of progress. One, not so much. What was your take? I mean, the Iron Dome thing was incredibly complicated, right? Because if it's the most defensible, you know, uh, and sensible aspect of like our military assistance, it, it's it is defensive. It saves lives. Um, you, when you and I have talked about conditioning aid, it's it's related to. Um, uh, other types of military assistance used for offensive purposes um, or um, uh, the cost of uh, the security around settlements and things like that. I think, you know, it's less about taking issue with the the fact of funding Iron Dome. I think what progressives were frustrated by is kind of two things that are not going to go away. Um, One, the prioritization of this, you know, like like we are in a week when we got the debt ceiling and government, you know, shut down and and the entire Biden agenda is, is hanging on a thread up there. And it reminded me of like in, um, you know, because we, we talked about this on the pod way back when I joined um, in 2019, I think, like I think S1, like the first bill the Senate took up was like an anti-BDS bill. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was just kind of like, even if you... Um, oppose BDS. There's a debate about whether you need to legislate around speech, but like, is this really the the top <laughs> order of business? You know, and and so the speed with which Democratic leadership was was pushing that forward, mm-hmm. you know, felt just kind of incongruous to the priorities of the caucus. And then I think there is another question that is a legitimate question um, around the degree of budgetary support we provide to the Israeli military when this is not like a poor country, you know? Yeah, they spent, um, I think, $20 billion in 2020 on their military. Yeah, and 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 so, you know, in any other circumstance, we'd probably be discussing why we are cutting checks for all this stuff, you know? Um, clearly that this was the worst vehicle to have this debate because it's yeah. a defensive system. Um, so it kind of, it was inevitably going to end like that. But again, it, it's... It, 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 it's a sign of just kind of uh, creeping discomfort. I don't want to overstate how widespread it was in this case because there was only nine members, right? But but I, I think everybody kind of knew that this this kind of routinization of just shipping aid out the door and prioritizing these types of bills over kind of everything else is just something that doesn't feel right process-wise. Yeah, and, and then in the attacks on the nine members who, who dared to ask questions, who voted no. Oh, over the top, so over like the top. The yeah. ADL yeah. tweeted this, funding for Israel's Iron Dome may have passed yesterday, but nine members of Congress voted no. No to helping Israel defend itself from rocket attacks from terrorists. No to protecting Israeli schools and hospitals and the civilians inside. No to saving innocent lives. Now, this was another billion on top of billions that had already been provided for the Iron Dome system. So they weren't saying no, 
they, they were, I think, trying to start a conversation about, okay, exactly how is this money going to be spent? Uh, I think why this number? Why, well, where did a billion right. dollars there, come from? There was no like line uh, yeah, item. Yeah, like what did you know? And, and look, I think um, they're doing their jobs. Yeah. Well, also like nine people voted against this. There, there's this kind of overwhelming force that comes down on anybody that bucks right. the trend. Dunking them. And, and like, so they they voted against a package of military assistance. They, they don't, that doesn't mean they want people to die. You know, I mean, if they had voted against a package of military assistance to any other country in the world, I don't think. You know that that there would be this kind of response, and and so just like the politics of it, feel like uh, the most. It's like all they were saying was really like, "Can we debate this?" <laughs> you know? Right. Which is kind of what lawmakers want to do on the Yemen thing. Um, I, it's a hugely constructive step, and I'm and, and it's a sign that how positive it is for Congress to keep on an issue, right? Just because Biden made an announcement that we're ceasing the offensive support. Like Ro Khanna, who's been a leader on this stuff, you know, this is him saying like, well, hey, we're holding you to that. Like, let's go here, you know. Um, and and I wondered whether Jake's trip was like not entirely um, divorced from that vote, you mm-hmm. know, because because, you know, it's, it's a sign that useful pressure, even from friendly sources, right, of like, hey, come on, we're nudging you guys like. This is dragging on. There's a been a blockade that's caused hum, humanitarian uh, terrible humanitarian consequences. So hopefully, you know, um, th- this kind of expedites the cessation of U.S. support for this whole enterprise. Yeah, two other sort of interesting points. Uh, Jamal Bowman, congressman from New York, proposed an amendment that would have required congressional approval to have U.S. troops in Syria one year after the measure became law. It it failed, but he got 141 votes, which is interesting. So like. Seeming like maybe a similar slow building of pressure to get us out of Syria that like we're seeing in Yemen, uh, and then depressingly, then uh, the NDAA authorized more defense spending than Biden even asked for, seven hundred and sixty-eight yeah. billion, which yeah. is twenty-five billion above what we requested. So that's just like, come on. This is a huge failure, I think. Of you know, there needs to be more of a focus on the bloated defense budget. It's absurd, and it, 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 it nobody knows what's in it. You know, they. The, the, anything that's cut is treated like we're going to be, you know, the Chinese are going to be invading the United States next year, right, or yeah, like right, terrorists right, yeah. be running through our cities if we spend $10 billion less when we already spend more than like the next 15 nations combined, including China. Um, and frankly, if you're looking at scarce resources and you're looking at how you're going to spend money to fight climate change and all these other things, um, you got to like the defense budget is a place to take from. And frankly, our security would be better served spending some of that money to deal with climate change, you know, when you just do a threat assessment. So I was really disappointed to see that. I do want to just say one more thing about Yemen, which is there's there's something to the idea that the offensive distinction is, you know, pretty uh, difficult to draw because, like, are we providing logistical support that's kind of like and refueling support and things that just kind of facilitate general military operations? Are we replenishing weapon stocks? Are we selling offensive military capability to the Saudis? Like, there's a there's a cutoff and then there's a gray space and we seem to be in the the gray space even though the direction that Biden has said is far better than the direction that Trump said. Yeah, and look, I think some military analysts would argue the same thing about Iron Dome and that. You yeah, know, they there, could. There's really yeah. at the end of the day, sort of no such thing as purely defensive or offense. Like it all kind of enables the argument the that someone would make would be that um, giving them and this is a difficult argument. Um, Giving them this defensive system makes it more likely that they engage in these op- offensive operations in Gaza. I still think, on balance, like 
people, there are rockets <laughs> fired at yeah. Israelis, you know, even before uh, the Gaza wars. And, 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 you know, if we have a capacity to help them shoot rockets down that would kill civilians, like that, that seems like the better use of our military. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm pro Iron Dome. Uh, a couple more things. I'll try to go a little faster because we're going long. So this story about Burma uh, or Myanmar caught my eye, Ben. So a federal judge ordered Facebook to release records of Facebook accounts connected to anti-Rohingya violence in, in Burma. Um, Facebook fought the release saying it violated uh, privacy law. The judge basically laughed at them and yeah. that argument like, oh, you guys and privacy yeah. got it. Um, yeah. So the Rohingya are a Muslim minority group in, in Burma. Back in 2017, more than 730,000 of them were driven out of Myanmar and into Bangladesh. There were widespread reports of war crimes and atrocities against the Rohingya by the military. There's an effort underway to prosecute Myanmar at the International Court of Justice at The Hague under the 1948 UN Convention on Genocide. Um, UN human rights investigators say Facebook played a key role in spreading hate speech that fomented the violence yeah. against the Rohingya. Uh, more broadly, you know, the military coup in in I keep saying them interchangeably, Burma, yeah. uh, Myanmar, are uh, more broadly this military coup is is ongoing. You know, the crackdown yeah. on, against uh, regular people is ongoing after I think eight months. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights estimates that 1,100 protesters have been killed. But the United Nations just can't do anything about it. They're paralyzed because Russia and China yeah. sell the Burmese military a bunch of weapons and they block any meaningful action at the Security Council. So basically, just wanted to bring the story up. We haven't talked about it in a while. Uh, vent about Facebook for a minute because you know they're also being accused of allowing incitement on their platform in Ethiopia yeah. Yeah. while blocking release of evidence about that same kind of deadly rhetoric and behavior in Burma. And it's infuriating. So if you want to dip in the back catalog, um, the episode four of Missing America, um, my podcast I did with you guys, um, uh, is all about disinformation and hate campaigns in, in, in Burma. Um, and, and it was central. I mean, basically, like there was like a, a massive effort to gin up hate of the Rohingya to kind of, you know, there were conspiracy theories. There's, you know, fake news about Rohingya men raping Buddhist women, you know, things that kind of whipped the population into this frenzy at the same time that this ethnic cleansing happened. And and Facebook did nothing really, very little to, to curb this. And when I traveled to, to Myanmar to work on a story I was writing for The Atlantic, like the, the, the Facebook had no employees in the country. Yeah, they could barely read they, what was being written. Yeah, they had two people who were in in I think Singapore that came like once or twice a year, mainly to make sure that the government let Facebook be there. Like they just didn't seem to care, you know, that this was happening. Um, and to me, like the long pole in the tent here is like, is liability that like essentially this is an important step towards trying to set a precedent that Facebook has some responsibility. And, and I think, you know, with government regulation, it should be legal responsibility for things like whether or not like an ethnic cleansing campaign is being orchestrated on their platform. And, and I think that, you know, the Times did a good investigation that identified that the Burmese military was behind um, mm -hmm. a lot of this hate campaign. So, uh, so yeah, it's a positive step forward. Yeah, release the documents, guys. Um, another update, because I'm basically out of questions uh, about this subject for you. So uh, the Washington Post reported that the CIA recalled its Vienna station chief because of inattention to cases of so-called Havana syndrome. Havana syndrome uh, is this mysterious illness that seems to manifest as headaches, nausea, like a traumatic brain injury, and is reportedly afflicted uh, around 200 U.S. intelligence officers or diplomats or others serving abroad. Congress has now authorized money for treatment. Uh, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, reportedly met with a bunch of State Department officials who have been suffering from the disease. 
Uh, there were reports that a staffer who traveled with CIA director Bill Burns on a trip to India came down with symptoms. That was weird. Uh, David Cohen, the CIA's deputy director, said the agency is getting closer to figuring out what's happening, but not close enough yet to make a sort of analytical judgment or a public judgment. So scary stuff. It is. Scary. Uh, and it's important to keep checking in because this keeps popping up. And it, it, like, look, they need to. Uh, you know, what I hope they're doing is like that there's a clear someone is in charge of this because it kind of felt like definitely the Trump years and into the beginning of Biden because they're mm -hmm. just getting into their offices and stuff like didn't feel like someone owned this in a clear way in the U.S. government. Like um, and it, I think it does, as I've said, I, th we need some answers here. Like th this is a weird thing to just kind of be a part of the backdrop. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it freaked me the or, fuck out. And tell us what you know and don't know. I, you know, I because I, the workforce of these places is worried. I mean, yeah. I talked to diplomats, I talked to intelligence people. Like, people are worried, and they 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 want some some additional information or, or some degree of assurance. Yeah, and I think they want to feel listened to and yeah. not treated like they're you know these are just symptoms that they're manifesting out of stress. I mean, look, these those kinds of things have happened before, but so many people are suffering yeah. from from this syndrome now that it's, you know. Oh, and I talked to, you know, some cases are probably are that, you know, someone had something else, like they had food poisoning. Or they, right. But clearly some of these cases are because of something that is being done to people, you know, just the scale of this suggests that. Yeah. Uh, another issue we talked about a couple of times is this growing spyware, spy software for profit industry. So the industry leader is a company called <laughs> the NSO Group. Good for them, industry yeah. leader. Uh, great Yelp reviews. Um, it was started by a bunch of former Israeli intelligence people. They claim this software is only used to track bad guys. That is bullshit. The Pegasus spy software that they created keeps showing up on devices used by journalists and human rights activists. The latest story that we wanted to highlight is uh, of, of a woman named Ala Al-Siddiq. Uh, this is according to a great report in The Guardian. So so she was the executive director of ALQST. It's a nonprofit advocating for human rights in the UAE and the Middle East. She tragically died in a car accident in June, but uh, a recent examination of her phone found that she had been hacked by the government, uh, a government client of the NSO group back in 2015. So Ben, I know you flagged this story. Uh, you know, maybe this will come up on Jake Sullivan's trip to the UAE because I would hope so. It's happening I mean, constantly. I because I, I if you if you read the story too, like what it speaks to is that she felt like she was being surveilled. Yeah, and she was afraid and kind of you know paranoid with good reason. And some of her friends kind of suggested that that might have contributed to her to, to what happened to her. Um, it, and look, it's a reminder that like the, the if the, the Yelp reviews, you know, would be like, you know, five stars V Orban or yeah. Mohammed bin Salman, MBZ, you know, Mohammed bin Zayed like in the UAE, the UAE puts on a huge, you know, show to the West about how much more kind of modern and, and in some ways liberal they are. Um, and, and, you know, if you travel through Abu Dhabi, that's what you experience. But this is a reminder that there's like a very dark autocratic undercurrent, you know, even harassing female human rights activists outside the country in, in London, places like yeah. London. And and I think any analysis of stuff like Pegasus and NSO, th there's like a lot of traffic that runs through Saudi UAE. You yeah. know? And so to me, this story is worth flagging both to to honor the courage of, of activists from those places, but also to kind of be the reminder that like. There's a nexus here of, you know, uh, that runs through the Gulf and Hungary and Russia that, you know, that, that, that is that is uncomfortable because it's 
it's not far away. This is happening in London. It's happening in, in Washington, I'm sure. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's happening on our countries. Yeah. Yeah. Muhammad gave uh, Pegasus five bone sauce in yeah, uh, yeah, his yeah. review. So let's end with a little more uh, Trump book news. It's, it's given us so much lately, Ben. So the latest book is from Stephanie Grisham. She worked on the Trump campaign. Then she was Melania's press person. Then she was the first White House yeah. press secretary in history who never held a White House briefing. When they said this book was coming out, by the way, I didn't remember who she was. And it's pretty extraordinary that I forgot the name of someone who was like press secretary for like a year or two or something. Right. I mean, because saying you're the press secretary without briefing is like saying you're a, a teacher, but you've never stepped foot in the classroom. Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah, core to yeah, what you yeah, do. Yeah. Um, anyway, so the book has some anecdotes about foreign policy that I thought we could end with. So the first is about Russia and Trump and Putin. So, quote, with all the talk of sanctions against Russia for interfering in the 2016 election for various human rights abuses, Trump told Putin, OK, I'm going to act a little tougher with you for a few minutes, but it's for the cameras. And after they leave, we'll talk. You understand? Grisham writes, recalling a meeting between the two leaders during the Group of 20 summit in Osaka in 2019. So basically Trump's saying, hey, man, I'm about to sound tough. It's just for the press. But wait, like my reaction to that was like, I don't recall him sounding tough for the press. You know, like that's so a good point. If, if that's if, if there was if the Delta was like, this is me being really tough. And then what happens in closed doors is me cozying up to you like man he must have been cozying up in private because i don't really remember a tough message at the osaka g20 you know you know ironically uh point trump team who are pushing back hard on this book because you're right that makes no sense uh here's the second russia anecdote so quote as the meeting began fiona hill leaned over and asked me if i'd noticed putin's translator who's a very attractive brunette woman with long hair a pretty face and a wonderful figure grisham writes she proceeded to tell me that she suspected the woman had been selected by putin specifically to distract our president now that checks out that 100 percent checks out and i will say that i was in a bunch of meetings with putin and and nobody who fit that description let's just say was uh translating yeah <laughs> it, was, it was like stern russian men yeah know? some uh, like yeah. clear you know ex-kgb yeah yeah, person. yeah exactly um yeah. uh grisham says that a trip to north korea inspired Mr. Trump to ask her to research ways the press could be permanently evicted from the James S. Brady <laughs> briefing room. That's kind of funny. Yeah, that's just kind of funny. I uh, mean, what not you, surprising in the slightest. Not uh, at all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is my favorite, Ben. Uh, Miss Grisham reserves special ire for Jared Kushner, whom she calls Rasputin in a slim fitting suit. That's a very, I mean, look, I'm just going to, I'll give this one entirely over to to Miss Grisham, that's a very apt description of Jared. The, 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 the slim-fitting suit somehow contributed to the Rasputin vibe because he was like that, you know, wealthy son of a real estate developer guy who, like, thinks he's cool because he gets, like, a slim-cut suit or something. You know, like, give me a break, Jared, with that. I mean, like, you're not, like, you you are what you are, which is someone who's, like, basically had a checkbook behind you your whole life. And now you're like utilizing your position of power and influence to service your your own personal ends. Like, good description there. So I don't know a ton about Rasputin. I guess he was sort of like a Russian mystic and he sort of advised the czars. But... Uh, apparently his scandal, this is according to Wikipedia, so deep research I'm, I, I, I'm actually done some deep dives on Rasputin. So, so I can, did he help discredit the czarist government and when he was died, yes. led to the Romanovs? Yeah, so basically over? he like can, he was this kind of mystic guy, con man, grifter, right? So he was hmm. a grifter. It was all about- He owned real estate. Yeah, well, not real estate, but it was all about like advancing- his He own owned the New York standing. Observer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and he like could comfort the- 
the the czar and czarina's child was like a hemophiliac and he oh, could yeah. comfort him and 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 that made, gave his influence was principally with the czar's wife um and this was a source of building resentment around the the royal family and 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 petersburg and and yeah like you know they killed this guy as kind of like one of the early acts of what became the russian revolution but but what he has in common with jared is he did not wear slim fit suits as i understand but he was entirely like a grifter power behind the throne kind of guy you know yeah i love it all right okay so maybe uh maybe that was a point grisham and shout out by the way to uh fellow podcaster mike duncan's revolutions podcast which is why i've recently been immersed in Rasputin's. i'll check that out also great uh show on hulu called the great which is about you know what that's uh, Zaris, that, that's a good show although it's funny it's like one of those like shows you put on you're like oh i'm gonna watch this period drama and like there's just like orgies you yeah know? it gets <laughs> raunchy real fast <laughs> yeah, there's it gets real fast there's like a lot of sex and, yeah you know, i was like, not expecting i didn't want to watch it with my parents you know i watched the crown with my parents yes so. yes watch the crown with your parents watch the great uh with someone not them yeah uh, okay <laughs> we are going to take a quick break and then we'll have my interview with jason resign It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com enjoy your edible <laughs> legal disclaimer paid for by vote save america vote save america.com not authorized by any candidate or candidates committee did you know that women make up 56 percent of law students that's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen it's clear that the future of the legal field is female so why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men hi i'm leah Littman. i'm kate shaw and with melissa murray we are the hosts of strict scrutiny Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, two, to more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. More stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras goose. Just- <laughs> Become a member today. Go to crooked.com slash friends now to learn more. I am so excited to welcome back to the pod, Jason Resign. Jason, it's so great to see you again. Tommy, it is great to be here. I'm, uh, you know, talking to you from my um, 
my basement bunker. My my little eleven month old is screaming uh, somewhere upstairs, and you know, <laughs> and here we are. You know, again after 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 a long time. A lot has changed. A lot feels the same. Uh, I'm in the same place you are. Uh, so we are here to talk about your incredible new podcast, Five Hundred Forty Four Days. Uh, it is hosted by you. It is written by you and produced by Gimlet, Crooked Media, and A24. So uh, some decent uh, production companies there. It's the story of the 544 days you spent in the notorious hellish Evan prison in Iran after they wrongly accused you of being an American spy. Your wife, Yegi, was also taken prisoner. The story is about your detention, the massive effort by the U.S. government, your family, your colleagues at the Washington Post to get you out. Oh, and by the way, Barack Obama was uh, cutting a nuclear deal with Iran at the same time. So you know, not at all complicated. There's not a lot of moving pieces there. Um, so just for listeners who might not be familiar with your story, can we just start with the basics of why the Iranians arrested you in the first place? Yeah, so I, I was the, the Tehran bureau chief for The Washington Post uh, in the summer of 2014. I've been living in Tehran uh, since 2009, working as a as a reporter for international media, uh, you know, freelancing really for, for several years until I was hired by the post in 2012. Um, and at that time when I was hired, I really thought that this um, relationship with one of the, the main newspapers of the world, the, the paper of record of, of the US Capitol, I thought that gave me some cover, mm-hmm. right? Some protective cover. Um, and as the uh, nuclear negotiations started heating up in 2013 and 2014, one thing that nobody really factored in was that there were actors within the Iranian regime that did not want to see uh, any kind of rapprochement between Iran and the West and Iran and the U.S. specifically. So when I was taken in July of 2014, it was right at the height of those negotiations. Uh, the time frame for coming to a deal, the deadline had been ex- extended by several months. And I think anybody who was following this closely believed that um, that the deal was kind of a, a fait accompli. I mean, it was going to happen one way or the other. Uh, and as you know, um, from being here in, in Washington at that time, there were a lot of opponents in the U.S. against diplomacy with Iran and that deal in particular. Inside Iran, there were opponents as well. And the main opponent was the the Revolutionary Guard Corps Uh, and agents of their intelligence wing um, raided my home uh, and abducted my wife and I um, very suddenly without any kind of warning and took us to Evan Prison where we really had no idea what we were being accused of. I mean, they said, okay, you're a spy. Uh, They put us in interrogation rooms for weeks on end. And during that time, they asked us all manner of of questions, which showed very clearly they had absolutely no evidence that we were doing anything wrong. I mean, I was just a reporter working with with state permission in that country um, who was was kind of rounded up as 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 bait. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're very clear when you talk about the experience. I mean, being put in solitary confinement for that long, being interrogated under under those conditions, it is torture. But what is surprising about this show and this podcast and like just you generally is how funny the show is. Uh, You, Yegi, your wife, your mom, your brother, like you are all able to somehow look back and laugh at this experience. You guys make fun of your tormentors. Uh, Is that something you figure out how to do after the fact or did you keep your sense of humor in prison? 
that's me, right? I mean, you know, that's how I've walked through life so far. Um, I've tried to uh, look at the lighter side of every situation I've ever been subjected to. You know, my my dad who um, who who died um, uh, ten years ago. Uh, he used to say, uh, "If you worry, you're going to die, and if you don't worry, you're going to die." Right. <laughs> so don't worry. And I've tried to kind of you know incorporate that mantra into as many um, moments in my life as I could. Obviously, this was a very extreme one, right? Um, and I had no way of knowing if and when I would get out, but I had to assume that I was going to survive this thing somehow. And um, and you know, you get to a certain point after several days when you realize, okay, am I going to be a friend to myself or am I going to be um, my enemy? Because mm-hmm. I'm in solitary confinement. There ain't anybody else around, right? So you look for things to laugh at. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you look for uh, memories, you plan for the future, conversations you had, and you can very easily go down very dangerous mental rabbit holes if you let yourself. Mm-hmm. I chose not to let myself. And part of that, a big part of that was finding things to laugh at. And as my, my world in prison opened up a little bit, more interactions with my interrogator and getting to know my guards. Uh, and then after time having a cellmate, um, I just found endless things to, to poke fun at because ultimately this was really the most absurd thing that had ever happened uh, to me. And I really wanted to pull out that absurdity in retelling this story. Yeah. Is it traumatic? Do I still have, you know, emotional and psychological scars? Fuck yes. Uh, am I going to let that stop me from laughing at it? I better not because then I'm really screwed. Yeah. I mean, some of the details are incredible and I, I will uh, not give all of the details away to listeners, but things you wouldn't expect like uh, the word avocado or Kickstarter become really central in your uh, in your tormentors uh, twisted twisted mindset in ways that are just I don't know it would drive me insane you're, you're stronger than I am because I would live in those dark rabbit holes well look I, I think you know the pull is very strong to go to those places but when you realize that um, that's not getting you anywhere mm-hmm. and that you you're better off kind of trying to uh, you know maintain a sense of equilibrium, the only way to do that is if you can laugh at shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so w- while you're in, in prison, there is this government effort to try to negotiate your release. Uh, at the same time, there are ongoing negotiations over you know, what will eventually become the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear agreement. Uh, what's amazing in this podcast is you interviewed all these people about the process of negotiating your release, negotiating the JCPOA. And you talked to them during the Trump administration when they were out of government, when they were willing to let their hair down and like speak freely and not be like, you know, the talking point robots that we all turn into when we go back in. And now a bunch of them, John Kerry, John Finer, the deputy national security advisor, are all back in government. Like what are what are people going to hear from those individuals that might surprise them? Look, I mean, I think that, you know, we, we always mm, think of people in government as um you know, superhuman or subhuman, but definitely not human, <laughs> right? right. Uh, and I, I think when 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 you hear these people, uh, you're going to realize that they are, in so many ways, 
dealing with issues in the same ways that anybody else would. They're just people tasked with a job, a huge job. Um, and I think that that the the sort of impossible challenge of weighing um, massive geopolitical issues against the concerns of a single family is something the government has to deal with all the time. Mm -hmm. um, they're not necessarily always really graceful about it publicly or privately. Yeah. Um, but I think we really see into that here. And, and for me, you know, I've had the opportunity over the last five years to get to know a lot of, of these people um, and also people in the Trump administration, specifically around the, the issue of, of hostage taking and hostage recovery. So there's a level of trust and intimacy that I've been able to, to, to build up with these folks. Um, but as you say, I mean, you know, they can't really let their hair down right now. They have a lot of other things to deal with. I'm, you know, of the, the eight or nine high level officials uh, that we, we interviewed for the show, uh, Ben would probably be the only one that would be willing to talk to me right now right. Uh, for this subject. And I know that because, you know, I continue to report on hostage cases um, and I can't get any of these folks on the record at this point. So, you know, that that's no knock on them. That's just kind of the, 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 the nature um, of how things work here in Washington. But I would say there's a level of intimacy to this show that you almost never get when you put uh, somebody in government alongside with somebody who, who who was affected by the policies that they're tasked with implementing. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you get, you know, town halls with presidential candidates where they're talking directly to someone who's impacted by war or taxes or, you know, healthcare policy, whatever. It's so rare to hear you, who was taken by the Iranians, talking to Ben Rhodes or John Kerry or Brett McGurk about the decisions they literally made involving you or release from prison. I mean, like, I don't know that I've ever heard that anywhere else. I don't think I have. Um, I'm sure that there are, you know, fictionalized tales uh, like that, you know, on film or in, uh, in, in literature. But to me, that's the thing that, that jumps out to my ear. Um, Cause look, I was incredibly lucky. Not everybody has the kind of advocates that, that I did. And that starts with a family and your employer um, and, you know, between my, my big brother and the Washington Post, um, they were able to get themselves into the West Wing multiple times. And, you know, um, as much as they became a thorn in the side of some of these people, there's also kind of a respect level that was um, that was built up over time. And I think that that really comes through in the show. I mean, it's five years after the fact that I'm talking to these people. And, you know, folks like Wendy Sherman and Ben um, and, and John Finer have very distinct memories of dealing with my brother. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's pretty cool as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I mean, look, it's not all government dorks in the show. Your, your wife, uh, Yagi, is, is interviewed a lot and is hilarious. Your mom, your brother. Also, Anthony Bourdain uh, has, a, has a big piece of the show. Can you, can you tell people how Anthony Bourdain became part of the story. Because, you know, for me, listening to that trailer and hearing his voice again, someone who I, I followed and listened to and revered in some ways, it was, you know, it was both jarring and also so wonderful to like hear the guy's voice again. Yeah. So when 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 we were 
arrested in 2014, six weeks earlier, we had been asked to appear um, on Parts Unknown when he was in Tehran. We spent an afternoon with him and it was, you know, it was a really lovely experience all the way around. Um, and then when we were, were arrested, you know, invariably someone's going to start thinking, okay, it must have had something to do with, you know, with being on that show, right? There's a lot of people who thought it had something to do with them and it didn't mm -hmm. have anything to do with any, anybody. But, but Bourdain was somebody who really, um, from the get-go, was full-throated in his advocacy for, for our release. And that never stopped. It kept going. And a couple of weeks after we got out, we had the opportunity to, to meet up with him in New York um, we had a, a, a meal and, and, and some beers and, and talked a lot and Bourdain just gave Yegi and I incredible life advice. And from that moment until, um, until he died, he, he was somebody who was very much in our corner, very supportive of us. And ultimately when I, when I proposed, um, uh, a memoir and, you know, wrote up the proposal and we took it to publishers. Um, we, you know, we had sort of one of these mini bidding wars where half a dozen different publishers wanted to publish the book. He reached out to me and said, Hey, Jason, you know, uh, whether you choose me or not, just give it some consideration. I'd like to, to publish your book on, uh, on my imprint. It's such an important story to me. And I want you to tell it how you want to tell it. And by the way, you know, he ended up uh, bumping up the um, the the fee that he was willing to pay the the book advance. Uh, you know, above and beyond any other publisher, just to seal the deal. So it's just like, you know, when when we made the decision, Yegi really you know kind of looked me in the eye and was like, Jason, were you ever even considering doing this with anybody else? And the answer was no, right? I mean, this guy uh, believed in us, and we believed in him. So, you know, that's how that happened. And as part of uh, reporting uh, out my story for the book, I spent an afternoon with him at, at his condo in, in Manhattan. Um, we had some beers and turned on the microphone and, and just kind of recorded a conversation. And I think, you know, magically, it really fits into the story that we're telling here. Yeah. I mean, it's weird to miss someone I've never met, but I, I do. Um, you know, you mentioned that in the course of your work at the Washington Post, you report on a lot of these, these hostage takings. Uh, unfortunately, hostage taking is far too common in, in foreign policy and in foreign affairs. Mm -hmm. Terrorist groups take hostages. Iran has taken countless hostages. I think some listeners of the show might say to me, hey, Tommy, uh, you could argue that some Gitmo detainees were or are hostages and they would have some a point. Um, there's also a troubling rise in journalists being held hostage. One yeah. example is a man named Danny Fenster, who's an American journalist who's currently being held uh, in Myanmar. He's been imprisoned wrongly since May. What do you think the best way, I mean, based on all your reporting for the U.S. government to deal with these cases? And like, what did the Obama administration get wrong in your case that the Biden folks hopefully can fix and get right? So I think the first thing that, that administrations often get wrong is not calling it what it is. When we call something an arbitrary detention or a wrongful detention, I understand the, the, the motivation for doing that. It is essentially to say that we acknowledge the sovereignty of this other country and the independence of their judiciary. Well, in doing that, oftentimes we're doing the dirty work for those regimes, mm -hmm. right? 
because all of a sudden, if they say, you know, Danny Fenster is, is being held because he's threatened our national security and, you know, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post all, you know, put a headline out there that says, you know, Danny Fenster is being held on, on charges of disrupting Myanmar's national security. Um, you're digging a deeper hole for the guy, mm-hmm. right? Come out and say it. This guy is being held because he's a journalist who reported on this country. So that is, there's nothing confusing about it for you know the average American or international reader who's learning about his plight. I was fortunate enough to um, to speak with Danny's uh, brother Brian a couple of weeks ago, um, around the hundredth day of his detention. I was introduced to him um, by another character in the show, Bill McCarran, the executive director of the National Press Club, um, and the Press Club was um, giving Danny uh, a press freedom award, one that I received while I was in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I joked in my column uh, and, and in real time that, you know, this is not an award you want because this is an award that they give to people who are being detained to really raise the stakes and raise the awareness around their plight. Um, and so much of what his family is struggling with right now is what my family struggled with. And I can tell you, that, you know, they feel like they're getting, you know, a lot of support. I think that there's been a lot of change in how we deal with hostage cases since um, since the, the hostage policy review that, that Obama ordered in 2015. It's just kind of changed how we approach dealing with families, right? And that's an important step, right? Because, you know, for a long time, there was not a lot of information sharing with, with the families of Americans mm-hmm. being held hostage. Um, and I think that there was a realization that that was a mistake, right? Um, n- no loved one is going to do anything that's going to hurt the chances of bringing their 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 loved one held hostage home safely. Yeah, and at some point you got to give them a little agency. I mean, it's it's their family member. You know, you can't exactly be so paternalistic. Um, you know, back to your your reporting. I mean, before you were you know held hostage in Evan Prison. You were just a reporter for the Washington Post. You were living in Iran. You were covering life there. You were meeting regular people. You know, like, what do you think it does to the Iranian people to have this big diplomatic agreement? The JCPOA comes into force. They see this glimmer of hope for better relations with the West. And then the Trump administration comes in. You go back to sanctions. The U.S. assassinates a top general. Now they even have an even harder line president. Like, what, what, what does that look like for the Iranian people? So, I mean, I think the Iranian people have been screwed um, by their own um, rulers, for lack of a better word, going back um, at least a century and a half, maybe maybe more than that. Uh, and I'm talking about different monarchies and now in the last 42 years, the Islamic Republic. Um, and also screwed by the international community, right? Um, it, it's It's sort of an incredible thing that Although we paid to um, to to foment a coup in 1953 mm-hmm. that overthrew the the democratically elected prime minister and reinstalled the Shah, and he was there for another quarter century, uh, and although we supported Saddam Hussein in the eight year long war between Iraq and Iran, and although we shot down uh, mistakenly an Iranian civilian aircraft uh, in 1988 killing 300 people on board. Um, Although we put massive sanctions on Iran and have continued to do so uh, in a way that, you know, has hurt that society way more than it's ever hurt their rulers. 
average Iranian is still pretty darn pro-American, hmm. right? I mean, they want to they want to study here, they want to live here, they want to consume American products, and I think there is always this belief that right around the corner there's going to be a sunnier day, in which um, the U.S. kind of holds up its end of their bargain in talking about supporting the Iranian people. We haven't done that, right? No. Um, there's no two ways around that. Um, and I think that, that Iranians, average Iranians, are still waiting for that support. Unfortunately, in some ways, they don't know what that looks like, right? It's just like, hey, help us. Um, but we have not risen to that call. Not the Biden administration, not the Trump administration, not the Obama administration, not the Bush, Clinton, Bush, Reagan administrations. It just hasn't happened, right? And I think we have an opportunity now to kind of not necessarily hit reset because, you know, the Islamic Republic is in a much more um, combative stance right now uh, under the, the new presidency Um you know, the, the ultra conservatives, the most insular powers in Iran have been um, bolstered in, in recent months. Uh, but it's also, you know, in a much weaker state uh, regionally and in terms of uh, the resources that it can wield. So I do think that there's change that we can help to affect there. Um, I don't necessarily think the administration is putting enough thought into it. Yeah, it's... Um... I would love to have seen them get back into the JCPOA a lot faster, but okay. um, yeah. you know what are you going to do? Uh, yeah. You know, look, you're you're right though. I mean, sort of both both parties have seen it as almost cost free to be incredibly hard on Iran. I used to like joke that you know, sometimes it's like we would govern by adjective. It was like you know the, the harsher you could describe the Iranian regime, the more it was seen as politically yeah. advantageous. Yeah. Totally, that is particularly true um, in sort of like super right wing. Um, circles. Uh, Mike Pompeo, my favorite former uh, Secretary of State, failed Secretary of State, uh, still likes to demagogue your release from Iran, still likes to rant about pallets of cash going from the U.S. to Iran. Can you explain for listeners once and for all what actually happened with the pallets of cash and how it makes you feel to have Mike Pompeo out there peddling this fable years and years later? I don't want to give away too much because I think it's a pretty powerful part of, um, you know, the, the climax of our story. Yeah. Uh, but I think that what I will say is that it was not a ransom payment. Um, and we uh, debunk that pretty well, uh, I think, in, in, in the description of it in the show, uh, told from the people who were involved in deciding on whether or not uh, the U.S. should pay uh, what was essentially an old debt to Iran that uh, nobody disputed. We knew we needed to pay that back to them. Uh, it was just a, ma a matter of how we were going to pay it back. Uh, very quickly after my release, um, you know, some, some members of uh, Congress uh, from the Republican Party decided to seize on this as uh, a political talking point. And, you know, it has stuck to the extent that uh, Pompeo was on um, on Fox uh, over the weekend, and he said that uh, that the U.S. had sent 150 billion dollars uh, to Iran, uh, and that it was Brett McGurk who uh, who sent this money to <laughs> Iran. Well, uh, it, it just it, it boggles the mind. Uh, 
I was glad to see that the, you know, the fact checker um, section of the Washington Post wrote a fact, another fact check article about this. They call the, the, the $150 billion claim a zombie claim, uh, which is basically, you know, uh, a, a, a piece of misinformation that has been debunked so many times, but continues to rise into the, the culture. It bothers me. It bothers me less and less. But um, I think it's a really uh, useful thing in terms of, um, you know, people might ask, why are we talking about Jason Rezaian and his imprisonment five years after he was released? Um, why are we making a show about this? Well, I don't know, but fucking Mike Pompeo still cares about it, apparently. <laughs> yeah. right? like, he's he got his butt all bunched up over this. Still. Yeah, he talks about it all the time. All the time. All the time. Um, so, you know, I think that, that it's the sort of thing that won't, um, disappear. Uh, and we had the opportunity to, to really kind of, uh, do a play by play that, that I don't think, um, has been, uh, attempted anywhere else. Um, and it's pretty fucking hair raising. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it's an incredible story. It's an incredible ending that uh, I would argue out Argo's Argo. But uh, again, I don't want to give anything away. Boom, I like that. <laughs> um, so let's just do a little inside baseball here and talk about how this pod came together because yeah. it was really fun. Like the stars kind of aligned. Like, you know, I knew you and I had connected from afar, like on on DMs and stuff. We like, I wasn't in the administration when this all happened, right? So I was an observer from afar. But, you know, you would come to L.A., we were talking, uh, Ravi Nandan from A24 had just read the book, your book, uh, and asked me if I knew you. And I was like, not only do I know the guy, he's here tomorrow. We, you know, you came in, you did the show. I mean, it, it felt very serendipitous how this pod came together. I mean, I don't know. It's amazing that two years later, here we are. Totally. There's a, I mean, there's I a think product. That, that it is, it's incredible. When you... Um, when you said that Ravi was, was interested and read the book, he came over, we had coffee, you know, um, I had taken a lot of meetings like that in the last few years since my release. Um, then we did the show and we had a conversation with Ben and I think it really, um, connected for all of us that this is really powerful way of telling a story, Right. Um, you know, the, the people in government talking with the person affected by policy. I love that episode. And I think, you know, it's one that, that um, people keep coming back to me. Uh, I don't know about if you hear this a lot, but the, the, that's, you know, that's a favorite episode, right. Yeah. Of, of the world. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember telling you at that point that we have, that I had had all this audio you know, of my conversations with, with, with people, uh, who were involved and, um, you know, the fact that, that, that we, we, we pulled this off, uh, the editor on the show who, who I've been working with, um, since the beginning, uh, pointed out last week that, you know, um, we've now been working on 544 days for nearly 600 days, <laughs> which is a pretty good indication of how much, you know, energy in terms of writing, reporting, interviewing, producing, fact-checking, um, 
we've done. So, you know, I, I, I love the product that, that, that we're, we're about to put out in the world. Yeah. You, you learned the hard way. What a really great podcast producer will put you yeah. through. It's, it's, uh, it's almost uh, torture. Like it's almost, you have in prison. Like uh, look, I, I said that a couple of times in, in, in the recording studio, it's like, okay, Jason, that was an incredible read. Now do it 73 more times. <laughs> um, no, but it's like, look, I obviously, the reason we love doing these limited series and telling these stories in a narrative fashion is I, I can read a book, I can watch a movie, but the, the power of hearing your voice, of hearing Anthony Bourdain's yep. voice, of hearing John Kerry, of hearing Yegi, of hearing your mom, of hearing your mom make fun of the judge who is presiding over your life and death. You know, it, it's just different. It, it lands differently. And it's just an incredible show. And I'm so excited that it's finally in the world. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, people keep asking me, like, you know, when's this going to be? Um, you know, a movie or a TV show. I mean, I think it all depends on, on, uh, you know, things that are out of yours and my control, but, you know, we, we did the, uh, the oral part and I think that it's, it's pretty fucking good storytelling. Yeah. As far as I can tell. Hey, Hollywood call us. Uh, so 544 days, you can only listen to it on Spotify. Do not complain to me because it's free. You can get it for free on Spotify. The episodes are out September 28th. You can listen to three of them right away. So you can do like a little mini binge, whet your appetite, and we cut you off for a week. Then you get more and more and more. But Jason, congratulations, man. Uh, it's just an amazing show. I'm lucky enough to have heard uh, early versions. It, but it's not, it's not just the show. I mean, the music is amazing. The sound design is incredible. Like it's an all-star team. I, I'm I'm so thankful that we were able to do this, and I'm excited to to get it out into the world and and just you know keep talking about these issues, about this story, about Iran, about America, um, and I'm I'm hoping we can do more of it. Me too, I'm, because honestly, the the this not only did the issues not go away, I think they've actually gotten more acute. You know, there, there's there's even more risk of a blow up with Iran. There's even more hostage taking happening. So this needs to be talked about and sorted through by the government officials and everybody else. 100%. All right, buddy. Well, thank you again. And uh, 544 days. Check it out on Spotify. You will love it. Thanks again to Jason for doing the show. Hell of a podcast, Ben. 544 days on Spotify. Yeah. Get it for free. Three episodes are out right now. It's really good. I do want to say to you, Tommy, I heard uh, your joke on on Potsy America about a, a two-bill solution. Thank you. And And... And I, I was like literally like guffawing. Um, I think guffaw, right? Is that? Uh, mm -hmm. And and the fact that neither John or John like even acknowledged your existence in, in the passing of that joke, I found kind of offensive. On your Look, uh, first of all, I appreciate that. Second, Favreau, to his credit, did give me kind of like a you know like a look. Like I, I heard you did. Okay, love he just, saw you. He saw you. Love it just ignored. Well, love it was plowing ahead to like his DLC kind of advice. Yeah, love it was yeah. plowing ahead. Yeah. Um, to uh, whatever he was going to say next. Yeah. Maybe he was threatened by, by the degree of humor and subtlety you brought to, to the Thank issue. you. Yeah. I really appreciate that. You know, every once in a while, you got to get a little world of life in there. Yeah, yeah. And, and there was a good clap back at Dan on Win the Future, I think. Dan, if you made it here. Uh, uh, yeah, again, yeah. we respect you. Yeah, we respect you. Uh, all right, that's all we got this week. Great. Talk to you soon. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. 
Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week.